I'm going to read from Isaiah chapter 6. Lead us in prayer. But Isaiah would write these words. Think on what Isaiah says in the year that King Uzziah died. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty, exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said of our God, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. Our Father, as we bow before you this evening, And we look in that passage of Scripture. We are thrilled tonight to hear preaching that's going to come from that passage that speaks again of you. And as we stand before you now in the presence of God, we come because of our great high priest, our Savior, our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, because we have been robed in his righteousness, we can enter the very presence of God in prayer asking your blessing upon this service, and may we realize that our God is holy. In this evening, we have the privilege of worshiping a holy God. To that end, we pray you would bless this service in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a delight again this evening to have Dr. Bruce Ware step back into the pulpit, challenge us from the Word of God. Dr. Ware is professor of Christian theology at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Let's welcome again to our pulpit this evening, Dr. Bruce Ware. What a joy to be with you this uh, Sunday, both this morning and this evening. Thank you for coming back again tonight, and I pray that the time you spend here will be worth the, the, the effort of being here in the worship of the living God, and again, seeing something about who God is that I trust will have an impact on all of our lives. To behold His glory as the holy God is an awesome thing to see, and I trust that the Lord will help us to see more of Him tonight from Isaiah chapter 6. You know, there are two truths about God that we really need to get right if we are going to understand who God is. In our culture today, we tend toward the first of these, which is the imminence of God. He is close at hand. Attributes like the love of God, the compassion of God, the care of God, His mercy and grace and kindness. Those are attributes that are highlighted among us, the imminence of God, that He is a God who is with us and cares for us, a tender-hearted God. And all those things are very, very true. But what we have almost lost in many quarters of the evangelical church today is the other truth about God, and that is that He is transcendent in His excellence. He is apart from us. He is independent of anything that He has made. He is gloriously full in the, in the, in the richness of His character as God. He is a transcendent God who has chosen also to be imminent. And can you not see that if we don't understand the transcendence of God first, we will not appreciate 
the imminence of God. We can hear God loves you and think to ourselves, well, of course. Of course. Well, look at me. I mean, why wouldn't he love me? I mean, aren't I lovable? And we don't realize the glory of who God is. It is astonishing. We should be dumbfounded that he would care for the likes of us, finite creatures, sinful before him, who deserve nothing but his wrath and condemnation. We are not amazed by grace, even though we sing it. Why? Because we do not understand that the God who shows grace is a God who is gloriously full in the infinite splendor of his transcendence. And one verse that captures these two sides of God, the transcendence and the imminence of God, is Isaiah 57, 15. Look at what we read here. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell in a high and a holy place, and also with the contrite and the lowly of spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the spirit of the contrite. I mean, here we have both sides, as it were, of who God is, his transcendent excellence, his independence of all that is, his holiness that separates him from all of creation, and his imminence, where he cares for needy, contrite people. But notice the order of them. Which one comes first in this verse? The transcendence of God. You see it in verse 15? Thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, holy, having to do with his separation from all things that are finite and created, his independence from everything that he has made. I dwell in a high and a holy place. And also, our jaws should drop. We should be stunned that these words are there in this verse. And also, can you believe it? That glorious God, that he would care for the likes of me. It is astonishing. So my friends, grace really is amazing. But we only see it when we understand that this grace is given to us from a God who is above all things, gloriously independent of this creation, who chose out of the freedom of his own life and soul to grant to us what we do not deserve. In his love and kindness, he comes to us. Well, Isaiah 6 will help us see this further. Because this vision of God that Isaiah has is clearly a vision of the transcendence of God. But then Isaiah also learns that this transcendent God, who is gloriously above all things, who is perfect in the splendor of his infinite fullness, this glorious transcendent God is also imminent. He is a God who cares, forgives, and comes to those who are needy. So let's look at this passage together. We've heard it read already tonight, so let's take a look at verses 1 to 4 just to remind us of the vision that Isaiah had himself of who this God is. I'm reading from the New American Standard Translation. Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 4. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with a train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. 
With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. What a vision that Isaiah had of this great God. Let's take a look at some of the aspects of the transcendence of God that we see in these first four verses. Isaiah begins, in the year of King Uzziah's death, which was 740 B.C., Uzziah was one of the good kings of the southern kingdom of Judah. You might remember that the northern kings, all the kings of of Israel, of the northern kingdom, were all evil kings, every single one of them, no exception. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. But in the southern kingdom, there were some good and some bad kings. Uzziah, for the most part, was one of the good kings. Now, he ended his life badly. You might remember that Uzziah, after many successes that the Lord had brought to him, many military conquests in which he trusted the Lord and the Lord brought him victory. He was a victorious king during his lifetime until the end when he decided to go into the temple and burn incense and the priests told him, don't do this, you're king, not priest. Now, remember, what's behind this is that there are two lines that come from two tribes in in Israel. One is the, the line of the kings, and the other is the line of the priests. And you can't be from both families at the same time. The line of the kings comes from the line of... Judah, right? And he, he, he was in the tribe of Judah and he was a king. But the line of the priests comes from Levi through Aaron. Aaron and Moses were both Levites. And, uh, and so the, the priestly line comes through Levi. Well, he was not a priest. He wasn't from the, from the tribe of Levi. And he should not be offering this incense in the temple. The priest told him to leave. He wouldn't leave. And so God struck him with leprosy on the spot right there. And he lived the rest of his life in shame as a leper, though he was the king of Israel, the king of Judah, the southern kingdom. So up until that point, Uzziah had been a faithful king and God had rewarded him and given him much success. But he's now dead at 740 BC. When I read these words, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I think there's more indicated here than merely a date. 740 B.C. I think rather we can read into this this idea. In the year of King Uzziah's death, namely at a time of great uncertainty, after all, who will be king next? Will he be a, an obedient king, a king that is faithful to God and thereby he will support the ministry of the prophets? Or will he be a wicked king, as we have also had in the southern kingdom? And will he work against the prophets of Israel? So here is Isaiah in this time of great uncertainty. I saw the Lord. Do you get the point? Rock solid certainty. In this time when we don't know what's going to happen in our country, in our nation, says Isaiah, My, it's applicable to us, isn't it? We don't know what's going to happen, but we know God reigns over all things. And so we can have hope. Well, who is this God that Isaiah sees? In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. Now look how he's described. 
sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with a train of his robe filling the temple. So we picture in our mind's eye this king, this glorious king, on this throne chair of his that is lifted high in this great room. And uh, whether the chair is on a pedestal, whether it's on some sort of platform that is elevated, whether it's suspended in midair, we don't know, but somehow this chair is elevated. Now, what is the point of this elevated chair? What is the symbolism of that communicate? Well, clearly one who is over all. He is supreme in his majesty and in his reign over all things. As we read a little bit later, the whole earth is full of his glory. So this elevated royal chair indicates his reign over all things. We read next that the train of the robe that he is wearing, evidently a royal robe, the train of that robe wraps around and around and around and around and fills the temple room in which this chair is located. Now again, you ask the question, what's the point of observing this about the train of his robe, this long train? What does a long train of a royal robe indicate? I think it's meant to indicate enormous majesty, power, authority, uncontested rulership over all things. This is a great king, the greatest king that there is, marked by the robe that he wears. The train of his robe is so long, it wraps around and fills the temple. This is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the greatest king that there is. Now, notice one more detail with me in verse 1. Notice that he is sitting on a throne. And so what would you expect the room to be in which this chair is located? If it's a throne chair, that indicates that he's king. Well, a king then would be in what kind of a building? A palace. But he's not in a palace. He's rather in a temple. Ha, temple. A throne chair king in a temple priest. The irony with Uzziah is just striking. Here is a vision of one who is a king and priest together. And of course, we realize who this must be ultimately. It has to be a picture of Jesus, who will be the first king of Israel who comes in the line of David right? He is king in the line of David. That's made very clear for us in many, many passages in the Bible. The angel Gabriel says to Mary that she will bear a son and he will sit upon the throne of his father, David, and his kingdom will have no end. So he is, Jesus is the king in the line of David, but he is a priest in the line of Levi? No, read the book of Hebrews in the order of Melchizedek. So his priesthood is established independent of the line of Levi. So here we have the first legitimate king-priest of Israel. So here we have a picture of Jesus. This is confirmed for us in John chapter 12, verse 41, where John quotes from this chapter in Isaiah and then says that Isaiah saw him and spoke of him, namely of Christ. So here we have the king priest, Jesus, who is on this throne, king of kings and lord of lords, this exalted, great, glorious God who is also the priest of his people. More on that we'll see in a moment. Verse 2, 
Seraphim stand around him, each having six wings. With two they cover their face, with two they cover their feet, and with two they fly. Isn't it amazing, these glorious, beautiful creatures of God, these creatures that if one of these seraphim were to enter this room right now, I think all of us would fall on our faces believing God had come into our midst. They are beautiful, great, glorious creatures. They are holy creatures. These are angels who have not sinned. They didn't turn away from the Lord. These are not the angels who became demons. These are holy angels. But they are in the presence of infinite majesty, infinite glory. So what do they do in the presence of this great and glorious king? Well, they fly. With two of the wings, they fly around. But they have two other wings with which they cover their face. What does that indicate? Well, obviously, it indicates The beauty and the splendor, the majesty and the brilliance of this king is so great, they cannot look upon him, though they are sinless creatures. You know, we we really need to be instructed by this. We come to God far too casually. When When we should realize the splendor of who he is that we have no right to be in his presence. We only come on the basis of Jesus. We come in his name. We have access to him only through Christ. So here here these seraphim recognize the infinite splendor of God and they cover their face. With two of their wings, they cover their feet. Now here's what I think is going on here. How do you fly around a room and and sing together, as we'll see in a moment? How do you do that while you are also bowing in worship before this king? Well, conveniently, you have two extra wings. And with those two wings, you put them in a bowing posture. They cover their feet, indicating they are bowing before him, even as they fly around him, indicating their worship of this God, their reverence, their their allegiance to him as the true and living God. So they are flying around, covering their face, covering their feet, and they call out, verse 3, to one another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, you know, in the Hebrew language, the way that you express a superlative, the greatest king, the greatest Lord, the way you express a superlative is by a single repetition of a term. So greatest king is king, king in Hebrew. The way we translate it in our English Bibles is king of kings. The greatest Lord is Lord, Lord, single repetition. We translate it as Lord of Lords. Here we have in the Hebrew Bible a unique instance. It only occurs here or where this passage is elsewhere quoted where we have a double repetition. Holy, holy, holy. As if to express human language cannot express the greatness, the infinite fullness of the holiness of this great God. It is impossible to express adequately with our limited language how holy God is. And holy has the meaning, by the way, at its root level of being one of a kind, being separate. That's why, by the way, the the Sabbath day in the Old Testament, the seventh day, Saturday, the Sabbath day is called holy to the Lord. Well, what makes it holy? 
Is it because, you know, Monday's a really yucky day, you know, and Tuesdays, that's, that's really sinful. That Tuesday, oh my, stay away from Tuesday. You know, Wednesday, stay, oh, that's, that's terrible too. But, you know, then there's that morally pure day, Saturday, that's holy to the Lord. Is that what it refers to? No, obviously not. A day of the week is not a moral entity. So in what sense is the seventh day holy? Well, it's the only day that you don't work. It is set apart. It is one of a kind. It is unique. And so the root meaning of holiness is to be different, to be distinct, to be one of a kind. So here God is holy, holy, holy. He is one of a kind. He alone is God. Well, you hear this over and over again through the book of Isaiah. There is no one like me, declares the Lord. There is no one other than me. He is incomparably God. He is exclusively God. He is one of a kind, the only God there is. He is the holy God, separate from all that he has made. Now, in addition to that, holiness also conveys the notion of moral purity. And that will come into play here. We'll see in a moment how when Isaiah sees the holiness of God, he understands not only the transcendence of God, that he is one of a kind and separate from all that he has made, but he is also a God who is infinitely pure. And we'll see this in a moment. Verse 4, we read some more about this great vision of God. The foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Now, this is an amazing thing, my friends, that the the seraph who are calling back to one another in an antiphonal refrain that is going on at this moment. Isn't that incredible? We know from the book of Revelation, this goes on in an everlasting fashion. The seraphim are before the Lord right now, calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. That as they do that, the intensity of their crying out these words, uh, of their antiphonal refrain back and forth between one another, the intensity of that is so great that the foundation stones of this great temple building tremble at the voice of those who call out. Now, what, why, why this intensity? It must be because they feel so deeply out of their souls is issuing forth this worship of God where they see His glory and they cannot contain how great God is and express it then with such a volume that the very foundation stones tremble. Not the windows rattling, not the walls shaking a little bit, the foundations trembling. Wow, what intense worship this is. Then the last thing we see in verse 4, while they call out to one another, the temple was filling, we read, with smoke. Now, honestly, I struggled over this smoke for the longest time, wondering, what is this smoke? And if you look at the commentaries on Isaiah, what they will point out, which is true, is that smoke is associated in many instances with the glory and majesty of God. For example, the smoke at the top of Mount Sinai. You know, when the law was given to Moses. And, and uh, so, so sure enough, uh, smoke is connected with the greatness and the majesty of God, which surely is true here. But I think there is more going on than just that. Notice there is another object 
that is in this temple that we haven't been told about yet, but we'll soon read about it. Do you see it in a few verses later? What else is in this temple building that might give off smoke? Do you see it? An altar. An altar with burning coals giving off smoke. Now, here's my thought on this, that the temple filling with smoke is is, is the smoke that comes from this altar that's burning. And the smoke, then, is a picture of the purity, the sinless perfection of who God is. Now, how do I get that? Well, what is this coal used for in a moment? We'll see. This coal is taken from the altar, and they touch Isaiah's lips, and he is cleansed. He is purified. So these coals indicate purity, perfection, sinlessness. So the temple filling with smoke is a symbol of the sinless perfection and purity of God. What a fitting way for the images to end. The very next thing we read is, woe is me, because he sees this symbol of the infinite purity and sinlessness of God. So now we move on and see Isaiah's response in verse 5. When he has seen this God who is so glorious, so rich, so full, so transcendent in his excellence, so separate from all that he has made, so pure and sinless in his being, how does he respond? Verse 5, Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, notice a couple things with me here about this. First of all, notice the end of this, the four that we read there. Uh, These conjunctions, you know, in your Bibles are really important to notice. Let me say again, uh, I, I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips for My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Do you see the connection here? It's only because Isaiah has seen who God is in his purity, in his stainless, sinless perfection, that he now can understand how grave is his own sin. My friends, if we don't put before people the holiness of God, how will they ever comprehend the nature and the gravity of their own sinfulness? How will we ever see it? I mean, we can live life with this illusion that we're basically good people until we see perfection, right? So we, just just as Isaiah needed to see God in the fullness of his sinlessness, his purity, his stainless perfection, so we need to see God that way so that we will understand the nature and the gravity, the depth and the seriousness of our own sin as Isaiah did. Here's a second thing to notice from this. He realizes he's not just in kind of you know, a sickened condition. I've got a few problems. Woe is me. I have a few problems to work on. Uh Uh-uh. Woe is me. I am ruined. The expression there indicates an absolute hopelessness, an absolute inability to do anything about the state, the, the condition that he is in. He is destroyed before God, and he knows it. He has no basis for living on before this God because he is ruined 
in light of what he has now seen of who God is. And he not only sees that about himself, but he sees that about all the people who are with him. This is another interesting thing to notice. You know, Isaiah was, relatively speaking, he was one of the obedient people in Israel. He, he, he was one who, who spoke the word of the Lord and, and endeavored to be faithful to God, and yet he lived and ministered in a culture that was largely disobedient. And so you might think he might say, well, I'm the one, I have some problems, but boy, look at them. They're the ones who are ruined. But he doesn't say that. When he sees the infinite perfection of God, guess what happens? A leveling takes place. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. We're all in the same state. There is no basis for one-upsmanship in righteousness at the human level when we have seen who God is. Indeed, we are all ruined people. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And that's it. That's it. Now, I wonder if you'll accept this statement with me. This account could have ended at the end of verse 5. It didn't have to continue. That is, what we're about to read of the mercy of God and the grace of God is not something God had to manifest. He did so out of His own freedom to grant to Isaiah what he does not deserve. The minute we start thinking that salvation is owed to us, we immediately evidence we don't understand salvation because grace means unmerited favor. It means we, we don't deserve the kindness that is shown us. This is not a matter of getting my paycheck. Uh-uh. This is a matter of receiving a gift that I had nothing to do with. In fact, biblically, we deserve the opposite of this. We deserve condemnation before him. This is exactly what Isaiah recognizes. I am ruined. There is no hope for me. There is no way I can reclaim my life in light of my sin before this holy God. So my friends, marvel that verse 6 continues the story. Mercy is shown from God. Let me, let me read again these verses of the mercy of God in verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. What an incredible thing. Notice with me, the initiator of this mercy is God. This is not Isaiah calling out and saying, God, bring this to me. No, he is on his face, down on the ground, realizing he has no basis for any favor from God. He deserves only God's judgment and condemnation. But what does God bring to him? Mercy and kindness. This is true of our salvation. It is by the initiative of God. It is nothing that we have done or could do that would ever elicit this from God. Rather, he freely gives it to those who do not deserve it. Notice, secondly, the means of mercy is personalized. Now, I didn't mention this point 
earlier at verse 5. But what did Isaiah say of his own ruined condition? I am a man of unclean what? Lips. Unclean lips. Now, I don't know why he said unclean lips for sure. My first thought, this was years ago when I was thinking about this, my first thought was, well, he's a prophet. And so what he's thinking of is the fact that he's supposed to speak the word of the Lord and do so accurately, but there are times at home, perhaps with his wife, perhaps with the kids, when he uses his mouth to say things he shouldn't say, and he knows that he sins in so doing. And so he thinks, my goodness, I'm a prophet who is supposed to speak what is right, and I, I, in fact, sometimes speak what is wrong, and I'm very aware of that. Well, that probably is true, but it can't, meet, can't be what he means here because he says, I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Well, they're not all prophets, so that can't be it. So what, is it, what does he mean when he says, I am a man of unclean lips? I think it is this, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Isn't that it? Our lips betray what is inside our hearts. Our lips testify to the crud, the sin, the wickedness that is within. When we gossip, when we cannot keep ourselves from saying that juicy little morsel about so-and-so, when we lie to cover our tracks, we sin with our lips betraying the heart of sin within. And so Isaiah says, I am a man of unclean lips. Now, what does God do in his mercy to Isaiah? He sends this seraphim with a coal in his hands, and what does that seraphim do with it? He touches his lips. Oh, my goodness, friends. Here's the point in this. There is forgiveness that matches our sin. There is a remedy that matches our illness. There is a cure that is fitting to our disease. I mean, isn't this just beautiful? God knows the sin of your life, and He has a coal for you. What a gracious God. Personalized mercy that He brings to Isaiah. The seraph comes and touches his lips. And then, of course, He is restored in this, isn't He? Verse 7 After he touches his lips, he says, your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is removed. It is forgiven altogether. The glory of the restoration that comes to Isaiah. You know, I I wish we could feel more deeply the, the greatness of the reality of sins forgiven. You know, in all of our Christian lives, we should endeavor by God's grace to meditate upon the fact that in Christ, all of our sin is forgiven. And rather than that becoming a more common, familiar idea that we simply pass off, it ought to become a more precious, resonant idea within us. And we revel in the fact, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Amen. This is what Isaiah experienced. The full, complete forgiveness of his sin 
unmerited favor that was brought to him by this gracious God, this holy God who had every right to judge him, but this merciful God who devised a means of forgiving him. How gracious God is. Well, this gives rise then to Isaiah's call for ministry in the verses that follow. Look with me at verses 8 to 13. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive and their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant. Houses are without people and the land is utterly desolate. And the Lord has removed men far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Now, my friends, the calling of God upon Isaiah is an astonishing calling. He is telling him essentially to proclaim a message of truth to a people who will despise everything that he says. They will hate him and his message. No pats on the back. Thank you, pastor. Wonderful message, pastor. Uh Uh-uh. It's not going to happen. They will vilify him. They will persecute him. They will oppose him at every turn in order for God to demonstrate the hardness of the heart of the people who now receive his just judgment. So Isaiah's very word to them is a means of exposing the hardness of heart of these people in Israel. This is 740 B.C., remember? What comes in 722? The Assyrians come and capture the northern kingdom, take the citizens of Samaria off into uh, into Assyria. The southern kingdom is not much better. 586, the Babylonians come in by God's design. Babylon is the tool of, of God to bring judgment upon the southern kingdom. In both cases, God exposing the hardness of the heart of his people by which they deserve the judgment he brings upon them. And so Isaiah's calling is, for the rest of your life, Isaiah, until cities are devastated, Until there is no inhabitant in the land anymore, you preach this message by which you will be hated and despised. And yet he did it. He he accomplished this calling upon his life. Now, how do you serve under such difficult circumstances? How can you endure under such opposition? And the answer is this, I've seen the Lord. I know how great he is that I did not deserve any favor from him. I deserve the very same judgment these people are are receiving. But what did he do? He sent a seraph and touched my lips, forgave my sin, and restored me into relationship with him. How could I do anything else but serve him? Here I am, Lord God. Send me. So, my friends, willing service 
flows out of this knowledge of God. Perseverance in difficult service flows out of this knowledge of God. So I conclude this evening with this question. Do you know God? Do you know Him as you need to know Him? Are you pursuing Him in the pages of Scripture, seeking not just to do your Bible reading? That's a great thing to do. Do your Bible reading. Yes, indeed, every day. But are you seeking through that Bible reading to know the God of the Bible? To read it like you would a love letter. You know, you don't read a love letter just to exegete the letter and find out what the sentences mean. No, you read it to get the heart of the one who wrote the letter to you. This is what you need to do in reading the Bible. Get to know the heart of the one who gave this word to you. To know him more fully for who he is as the great, glorious, transcendent God that he is. Who, being such, has shown to us amazing grace, kindness, forgiveness, mercy that we do not deserve. God in His greatness and His goodness, His majesty and His mercy is worthy of our adoration and our service for all of life. Praise be to His name. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank You for this time this evening as we've been able to reflect upon something of Your greatness your holiness, your transcendence, your otherness, along with your imminence, your mercy, your kindness, that you come to us and save us and restore us. We are amazed, Lord God, at who you are, at the greatness of your character. And pray, Father, that you would give us hearts that long to know you better, and through that, to be a people who will serve you with persistent, faithful obedience through the whole of our lives. To the glory of your name and for the good of us, your people, we pray this in the name of Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Amen.